Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. And before we get to the introduction, Kurt, can I just say how great it is to do what we do? It is great, isn't it? Using the podcast as a way to talk to a bunch of really cool researchers, practitioners with great applications, and authors with super cool ideas. People that would never talk to us any other reason, right? <laughs> right. Talk to cool people, Tim. Yes. And it's always fun. It is always, always fun. Yeah, man, I, I couldn't agree more. And this episode is double fun because we spoke to a cool researcher who is also, guess what? A podcaster. It's sort of like a double fudge banana brownie with vanilla bean ice cream experience for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would say maybe it's a like a super rich double black IPA that you drink on a nice cool night and you get the fire in front of you. I don't know. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to get to our guest in just a minute. But first, we should tell you about this podcast. Definitely. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast where we unpack the secrets of the behavioral science universe with the help of insightful researchers, authors, and practitioners. Secrets no more. We are here to share the coolest ideas and offer some insights into how you can apply them into your work and your life. And in this episode, we've got some cool research to discuss with you about certainty and persuasion. Yes, we do. Our guest today is Professor Andy Luttrell, an assistant professor at the psych of psychology at Ball State University. His work focuses on moral psychology and the way we are persuaded or not persuaded to change our positions on things we consider moral imperatives. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about with Andy uh, was his work on how people who have based their positions on really careful analysis are often those who can be persuaded to change their position as long as the underlying data demonstrates new insight. However, he also revealed that people who have made their decisions about where they stand on weak arguments, like, that's just how I feel, tend to be harder to persuade. We found the entire discussion very interesting, very insightful, and we think that you will too. We also want to call out Andy's side gig as a podcaster. I mean, his podcast is amazing. It's called Opinion Science, and it's a show about our opinions and where they come from and how they change. Honestly, Opinion Science is one of our favorite podcasts right now, and his episode on cognitive dissonance is flat out freaking amazing. Yeah. It's great journalism and great science communication. You really, really, really should go and check it out. Yeah, right now you should go and check it out. Well, well, after this episode, okay, okay. <laughs> you got to listen to Andy here first and then get the broader perspective when you go out and listen to him again. Okay. And one last thing before we head into our conversation with Andy, we just want to invite you to jump down to the bottom of your podcast listening app and give us a quick rating or a short review. Kurt and I do this to expose people around the world to great ideas. And the best way to spread the word is through a good review. Yes. And thank you in advance. We really, really do appreciate it. Um, anybody who does, we are very, very thankful. All right. So now we encourage you to sit back with a fresh double black IPA drought of pleasurable certainty and enjoy our conversation with researcher and podcaster, Andy Luttrell. Andy Luttrell, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Great to be on here. Thanks for having me. 
Well, we are fans, first off, of, of your work and, and your podcast, and we'll talk about that later. But we always start with a speed round. So I'll, I'll get going. And uh, the epitome of our speed round questions, the one that we almost ask every time, coffee or tea? Oh, coffee for sure. Oh, okay. All right. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite rock star or favorite sports star? I would say rock star because I don't have a favorite sports star. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, Tim likes that. All right. Um, would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? Probably language because I think I could actually do that because I can't <laughs> learn an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're you're, you're projecting I, out I'm being actual very practical about it. Yeah, there you go. All right, good. Um, if you could be a podcaster full time, would you be willing to give up your research and teaching gig? No, I don't think so. Okay, okay. So let's talk about that. <laughs> sure. You, you started a podcast just April of this year. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, classic COVID podcast, right. right? You had nothing else to do, <laughs> so you started a podcast. Well, no. I mean, the, the reality is, I had had the idea. I'd wanted to do this for years, I think, and and I had finally, you know, gotten committed, and I was going to do it. I got all this stuff, and then COVID hit, and I thought, okay, well, I guess. That worked out because <laughs> now I can actually reach out to the people I want to talk to and they they have more time available to actually give to it. So it was definitely it was something I'd always wanted to do. But but you're, you're right that, that it definitely found more time for me to work on it because of lockdown. Why? Why did you start it? What what, what was the impetus? If we go back to last fall, why, why were you thinking, oh, I think this would be a, a fun thing to do in addition to teaching and researching? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I've been a long time podcast fan. I, I've, in, in making it, I'm realizing how long this obsession of mine goes back. Because I remember, <laughs> I think it was like 2005 or so when I started listening. And that was like, real early days like that was like barely a few on itunes <laughs> yeah uh, and i just really loved the format of it and and the way that that you could tell stories and then my first year in college someone introduced me to this american life and then i started listening to that and then radio lab yeah. and it sort of just became this thing of like this medium is such a cool medium to talk about anything and tell stories and have conversations and so I also have for a long time been into like science communication and trying to share psychological science broadly through internet videos or teaching or whatever. And it just sort of felt like, well, of course, right? Of course I should make a podcast <laughs> about the things that I'm so interested in. And it took a while to settle on what exactly that would look like, like what the format would be, what the topic would be. Um, and then I finally thought, all right, I'm, I'm sick of trying to <laughs> find time to do it. I'm just going to do it. And yeah, there we are. Well, and and so um, your your podcast, Opinion Science, and and so you do bring in uh, researchers typically mm -hmm. to to talk through uh, fascinating pieces around uh, opinion research, but just in more general, right? You, you, I mean, how would you describe the podcast to, to our listeners? Yeah, the tagline I often use is "It's a show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change." Yeah, and that casts a pretty broad net. And I even stray maybe a little bit beyond that sometimes too. <laughs> um, to me, everything makes sense together. The theme is very clear to me, but it's the theme is really like stuff Andy's interested in. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that's fantastic. I really do. I, I because as as a as a songwriter, I like to to write in a whole bunch of different genres. And I remember presenting uh, you know, 12 demo tracks to a producer one time and he's like, 
you know, he said, these are really different styles. You have a single band that's going to perform all these because a little Latin jazz, a little mm-hmm. bit of folk, a little bit. And, and I'm like, oh, God, I hadn't thought about that. Is that bad? And he's like, no. He said, you're the hub. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, as the songwriter, you're, so you, anything that you get interested <laughs> in is enough. That's, sure. I, and I think it's fantastic, actually. <laughs> well, but I think, too, it, it shows in, in the podcast uh, that the, the passion that you have, right? And I think that's a, an endearing quality that, that makes it special. So um, for, for our listeners, if you haven't told, we, we, Tim and I have become fanboys. And, and so we, we definitely encourage you to go out and listen uh, to Andy's podcast. But uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But we wanted to talk a little bit about some yeah. of your research right mm-hmm. now, because in addition to the fantastic podcast that you do, you are a, uh, you, you teach and you do research and you bring all of that in. So Tell us a little bit about your work as a researcher and what got you interested in persuasion, social influence, moral psychology, kind of in that in that arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the if I'm to give you the, my like personal statement to grad school version of the story. <laughs> it's, so growing up, my, my big obsession growing up was magic, performing magic and magic tricks and magicians, and and it was sort of like my twenty four seven everything that I thought about in like middle school, high school was this, and, and that brought me to, you know, areas of people talking about like where beliefs come from and how Mm -hmm. people, you know, I got very interested in the kind of magic that's like mind reading and whatever. And that gets you into this murky world of psychics and mediums and kinds of things that you go, well, I don't really know that I, I love the idea that people are forming like belief systems and, and entire ways of like thinking about what is true and not based on performances of what are essentially tricks oftentimes. <laughs> and so it, so it got me thinking like, how do people come to these confident ideas about the world when maybe there's no reason for them to be that confident? And so some of my undergraduate like research methods projects were about, you know, the, the confidence people have in a memory that we mm-hmm. know is biased by all sorts of things. And then that, led me to the attitudes and persuasion world where people talk about attitude certainty a lot, right? People have a lot of conviction behind the worldviews and and opinions they have about all sorts of things, which is what brought me to Rich Petty's lab at Ohio State because he had been doing a bunch of this research on uh, certainty. And so I thought, well, that's a natural fit. And then, of course, you know, Rich Petty is like the persuasion guy um, (laughs) in social psychology. And and so I just Mm -hmm. sort of found myself in this world of persuasive communication and opinion change um, and so th- that was kind of the seed of it. So what was the first paper that you started working on? Well, the first project I could tell you, which sure. has never become a paper. Oh, <laughs> even, better. even better. <laughs> we were doing, it was, it was an oddball thing. It was, and, and you know, maybe there's still something to it, but this is one of those things where now it's many, many years later and we still don't quite know what's going on, but it was this, this off the wall idea of um, when people will support U.S. intervention in foreign conflicts. It, it was okay. a very specific, and and it was this idea that um, it would matter whether the conflict was occurring between different countries or within a particular country. And we ran all these studies, and and we sort of have hints of it being sort of biased by whether these conflicts are occurring within countries or between countries. Um, but that is that hasn't really gone <laughs> as far. So, so the, the true and honest technical answer to your question is that project, but probably the answer that is closer to what has evolved now into the work that I do is bringing that certainty uh, thing back into the equation, which is, 
like I said, I had this idea that people seem to be certain of stuff oftentimes when maybe there's no good reason for them to be that confident in what they're saying. And so we sort of started this project on what I've called unfounded confidence at certain parts of time, or other times we talk about the reasons people have for being confident, whether they're strong or weak reasons for being confident, all of which sort of evolved into my dissertation work, which still we're plotting away to, to get out <laughs> there someday. But the, but the basic notion is that if we look at not only if people are confident in an opinion, but why they think they're confident in an opinion, we find that people vary. Some people have very good, strong reasons to be confident in opinion. They say things like, I know a lot about this issue. I've thought about this an awful lot. And so I really feel sure that this is the right answer. Other people will say, uh, just feels better to be sure. <laughs> or they'll say like, uh, I didn't never really thought about it, but it, I kind of am in a better mood. And so maybe that's why I'm feeling so confident. I think we would say those are probably less legitimate <laughs> bases for, for yeah. confidence. Yeah, definitely. And so well, what we tend to find is that when people are sure, they're more resistant to persuasion, but the way they resist is different. So the people who are sure for strong reasons go in and attack your arguments, refute the, the logic that you're outlining and saying, no, I still think what I think because I can see why you're wrong. Whereas the people who have weaker reasons for certainty go, mm, I'm going to hang on to my opinion. And I just, I might not even look at what you're saying or I'll kind of brush it off. Anyway, I can just kind of hang on to my opinion without going too deep into what you're trying to say. <laughs> so certainty has an appeal for people. There, there's some aspect of that. What? How, how, how do you explain that? I mean, what, what, what is that for people? People talk about it, like you say, as a, there's a pleasure of certainty and uh, aversiveness of uncertainty. I, okay. I think a lot of it is maybe driven by that negative experience of uncertainty that when you really mm. don't know what's going on, there are all sorts of reasons that you might say, well, that's unpleasant, right? We as people kind of want to have some sense of our world, what's going on around us, what we think, how we relate to others, that when any of that is in doubt, that feels uncomfortable. We go, oh, I, I want an answer. But we know that that's not true of everybody. There are people who would be totally fine, <laughs> never reaching certainty on anything. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, there, there are some of those. I mean, that's is, this a, is this a large portion of the population? I'm sure it's not huge. I mean, it's it's a, it's a continuum, right? Of, of yeah. Most people are somewhere in the middle, but you have people who extremely prefer certainty. I'm thinking especially of, of like uh, Krugelansky's idea of need for closure. So mm -hmm. some people have a strong need for closure. They go, I need answers to my questions. I don't necessarily care what those answers are, but I just want a quick answer to my questions. Whereas on the low end of that continuum is the need to avoid closure. People who go, no, 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 I don't want to reach a conclusion yet. I need more information. Wow. And so I'm, I'm happier to sit in this sense of uncertainty for, for a longer amount of time. So is uh, it sounds to to a certain degree that there's some personality aspects that uh, align or correlate with this. It, it, have you found that to be true? Has there been research done in in that arena as yeah, well? So there's a new paper out that shows that there is an individual difference component okay. of certainty that some people just kind of have this tendency to evaluate stuff with certainty across all sorts of topics, right? Topic A, B, and C. If you're confident about your opinion on one of them, you also tend to be confident in your opinion <laughs> about the other and vice versa. So, you know, people who are unsure about one topic also tend to have a kind of natural uncertainty about most of the things that they're evaluating. 
Interesting. You wrote uh, you wrote that uh, greater ambivalence was associated with greater instability as attitude certainty increased. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a fascinating fascinating idea. Can you can you talk about um, the, the the paper that, that that came from? Yeah, so that that's an idea about whether attitudes or how much attitudes bounce around over time. So sometimes mm-hmm. people have their opinion on this topic, and that remains their opinion every time you ask, right? Whereas other people. Uh, the opinion I give you now might be a little different when you ask me tomorrow, might be a little different from when you ask me in a week. Yeah. And so in general, you might expect that the more confident people are, the less that opinion is going to bounce around, right? If I'm yeah. really sure that I think organic food is wonderful, then tomorrow I'm also going to tell you organic food is wonderful. But what you point out is that we find that that is dependent on whether people have a really clean, clear, one-sided view of an issue or whether their view of the issue actually is kind of a mix of potential positives and negatives. So sometimes people can have a mix of there are good things and there are bad things. And I'm sure I, I feel pretty confident that I've spent the time needed to realize the positives and negatives. But the curious thing is it means that that confidence might actually signal that you're more able to bounce around, right? Meaning today, as I think about Ah. the negatives, I'm feeling like I don't like this thing that much, right? And I'm really sure, right? Because I know that there are definitely negatives. But tomorrow when you ask me and and something else in my environment is kind of cueing me to the positive aspects of this, I'm also pretty sure of (laughs) all the things that I thought. And I go, no, 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 this thing is actually great. Um, And so it's one of those weird times where potentially certainty in some instances, would would lead you to be a little more unstable over time in how you see something. Yeah. And, and, and to a certain degree, is that from this aspect that you that that you find that people have looked at things from multitude of perspectives, and thus the context that they are in is priming or prompting uh, the appropriate uh, associations to to come up from one perspective or another. Is that kind of the hypothesis around that? Yeah, that's the idea that that your opinion is, if it's a mix of positives and negatives, the environment might cue you to think more about the positives or the negatives. Even like, if I'm just a survey maker, yeah. I need to be careful about what questions come before the question I care about, because yeah. sometimes those questions cue you to think about this topic in a positive light and sort of draw you in to see it positively in the moment, whereas other questions might cue you to think negatively. And and if you're also perfectly sure that there are negative parts of this thing, it it (laughs) might more easily nudge you to see this thing as negative. Wow, man. Yeah, that's fantastic. Right, let's let's turn the page just a little bit because you've done some research into ways to effectively communicate the importance of social distancing. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did you go about studying this? And and because uh, I think this is particularly fascinating, how you actually went about studying this social distancing stuff. And then and what what did your research reveal? Sure. So yeah, the the, the backstory of that is you know going back to this idea that you know attitudes are can be certain or uncertain, and that affects how strongly people hold those attitudes, how easy it is to change those attitudes. We started to think that morality would would be an important part of the puzzle as well. So the more people connect their opinion to a sense of what's morally right and wrong, the harder it should be to change their mind. And, and there's been research to show this. We've found some similar kinds of things before. But we also started to think, well, maybe one of the reasons why moral attitudes don't appear to be persuadable is that the arguments people are delivering in a persuasive message just aren't targeting the morality of the issue, which is what what someone would care about if they have a moral take on this issue. And so if you think one of the the topics that we used in the first paper on this was recycling. So if I 
see recycling as a morally good thing to do, right? I not only support recycling, but I think it's a moral issue. If I try to convince you, actually, recycling is really expensive and it's inefficient and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Sure, those might be compelling arguments, but they don't address my actual interest in this, right? They, they're, It's not about the morality of it. I can go, it can be as expensive as you want it to be. I still support <laughs> it because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, that, that maybe is why that resistance is happening. And so what if instead you made a moral argument to a person like that and said, well, Maybe there are, are ethical reasons why recycling might not be good, right? There are environmental problems. It, it overburdens. You're adding more trucks onto the road, which pollutes the environment more. And, and that's, you know, makes it impure and, and harms wildlife and whatever. So now all of a sudden it's a moral argument. And what we find is that when you do that, this resistance that moral attitudes have to persuasion goes away. Um, and, and in some cases, you could even see that people become more open to persuasion when the persuasive arguments are about morality. So that's sort of the backstory. We sort of thought, okay, this is this interesting case of tailoring your arguments to what the audience really cares about. And you can yep. start to see that moral resistance fade away. And so for social distancing, it, we, we wanted to explore something a little different, but hang on to this idea that some people are going to be really receptive to moral messages and some people might not be as receptive to those messages. And as I was seeing, I remember just watching a PSA on TV about social distancing in the very early days. And it was all about like, do this for your community, right? Stay at home so that people don't get sick in your community. And I thought, gosh, that sounds quite a lot different from how other people have talked about it. Of like, oh my God, you need to not get this virus because it'll harm you. Yeah. It'll be a problem for you. And it's saying, well, is that is that a difference in moral? Like, do people experience that as a difference in moral arguments, right? That if I tell you stay at home to keep yourself healthy, yeah, that's, that's kind of a pragmatic, selfish reason to stay home. But if I say stay home to protect your community, that seems like a moral obligation that you're trying to, to convince me to uphold. And so what we found was that, yes, in general, when you appeal to this sense of community and helping others, Kind of on average, there's this tendency that people find that version of the story more persuasive, which connects to all sorts of like other health messaging research from before us. But we found that that was especially preferred among people who already saw public health as a moral issue, right? So again, Mm. this is an audience who already sees this issue through a moral lens. And so this protect your community argument was more compelling to audiences who were ready to see this issue as a moral issue. Whereas for people who don't see public health as morally relevant, it it turned out not to really matter whether you make a selfish pitch or a community pitch. So extrapolating that out, right? So many of the people that may not be, will just look at mass wearing, right? Right. And Mm -hmm. and it has become politicized and it has become uh, a, a signal, right? To maybe some of your political or maybe even some moral underpinnings of, of liberty mm-hmm. in various different pieces. So it, so extrapolating this this messaging out, if, if we're to, to try to do moral messaging about others, if somebody doesn't already hold that opinion that that this is a public health uh, aspect, then that type of moral message won't work. But is there a, a another type of moral message that you could see that may touch in maybe on some of those people who are, uh, you know, more resistant to, to wearing a mask for some of those reasons? Does that a mm-hmm. long-winded 
question yeah, yeah. that went round and round. So yeah, so it, it speaks to some other work in moral messaging that is we've never quite tied them together <laughs> in yeah. these two lines of research. The other one uh, that I'm referring to is, is research by Matt Feinberg and Rob Willer on what they call moral reframing, Okay, which their point is, is mainly, you know, it's not moral versus not moral. It's one version of a moral message compared to a different version. So like you're saying, mm. I can, I can draw on different kinds of moral values and they have all these data showing mostly comparing more liberal to more conservative audiences mm -hmm. that different versions of a moral message are going to resonate differently with those two audiences. So um, conservative audiences tend to have stronger values on things like um, purity and authority and community. And so those kinds of values are going to resonate more in your message with, with a more conservative audience. Whereas more liberal audiences tend to have values centered on harm reduction, fairness, et cetera. So those kinds of values are going to be more um, resonant with liberal audiences. So that speaks to what you're saying, which is that the exact way in which we come up with our moral arguments may work better for some audiences than others. But our main point is that this is driven by whether you already moralize this issue, right? Now the second question is, okay, which morals should we appeal to? So I think, you're, I think there's definitely reason to suspect that targeting different moral concerns ends up being useful in the long run. Um, and whether that's the case of framing things explicitly as like, this is about right and wrong versus just saying, I'm just going to use the language that I know you like, and I don't have to invoke a sense of moral right and wrong when I do it. I'm not sure if that quite makes sense, but that's sort of how I see the difference being. Well, is is that because in part uh, this the, just picking up on this last part of the idea of it's the the way the the words that you use are going to be just fine? Is that because there is a, some kind of moral code inherent in those words? Yeah, I don't I don't know. So one of the things when I look at the moral reframing research is that mm -hmm. their messages, as far as I can tell, usually don't come out and blatantly say this is morally wrong or this is morally right, <laughs> right, which is what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, if we use this language of morality, does that sort of make certain ears perk up more than other ears? Yeah. Whereas they're saying, well, we're just going to say, here are reasons why we should increase military spending, right? And then those reasons are either reasons related to more conservative values or reasons that are more related to liberal values. So yes, you're right that they that might kind of conjure up moral imagery for people. I just don't think we know that necessarily. That's sort of what the next stage of this might be interesting to look at. Mm. That is fascinating. So uh, when we think about um, uh, governmental agencies or other, other organizations that are looking to influence people in, in, and again, let's just use COVID and, and wearing masks as, as an example. Um, what I'm hearing, and, and I think what the research is pointing to is, is that the messaging that we use is, is important. We, we knew that, right? That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, pretty low, low hurdle to, to jump over. But the idea of, of tailoring those messages based upon some uh, understanding of moral, uh, people's people's moral feelings and if we we understand conservatives versus liberals might have different moral leanings that we can we can then tailor those messages to to impact behaviors better is that uh, is that something that you you would uh see as 
A, is that is that the appropriate? Did, did I did I understand that right? B, um, you know, are you seeing any organizations doing this in in, in the work? Are, are people contacting you about any of this? <laughs> My phone has been fairly silent. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> but yeah, the, the sort of big general point that I think I've made about this research is that health communication is not a one size fits all endeavor. Mm -hmm. Same thing with persuasive communication, any kind of communication. We often, I think, get drawn in by these claims that like, here's the way you can persuade people. Here are the secrets to, to convincing people to change their behavior. And it's like, yeah, some of those strategies may be effective, but they're probably not effective universally. Yeah. Um, and if we're on this quest to find like the ultimate holy grail of, of communication, I just don't think it's there. I, th I think the holy grail is in the interaction between the point you're trying to make and where your audience is coming from and what they're prepared to, to be open to. So some of the the components, and we've talked about this, Tim and I, from an from an ethics perspective of of applying behavioral science, and and you can take uh, believe or not believe. Again, this will be interesting from your perspective on on strength of attitudes about uh, Cambridge Analytica and mm -hmm. and their ability to uh, decipher your personality profile from your Facebook likes and thus target, you know, specific messaging ar around different things. So, uh, from your perspective, do you see that, uh, what are the positives and then are, what are the potential downfalls of, of kind of getting to that part where we're, we have AI, we have machine learning that is able to, to do a pretty decent job. And, and I'm thinking about within organizations where you might even have people take personality tests. And so internal communications could be customized down to some very specific elements. Um, you know, there's obviously positives to that, but what are, what could be some of the, the, the negatives to that as well? Yeah, there's, I, I definitely know that people are queasy about <laughs> this yeah. idea of tailoring. And I, I I don't have a whole lot of skin in the game in terms of like the ethics of how people are actually pulling it off, right? Presumably there are appropriate ways to implement <laughs> these things and inappropriate ways to implement these things, um, which doesn't render the the strategy itself useless, right? There's right, only right. New data on that. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. There, there are privacy concerns. There's also questions about there are so many ways you could tailor a message to something about the audience. And, and what we don't, I think, have a strong enough sense of yet is like which kinds of those tailoring are really the most effective. Mm. Right? So if I go, ooh, I counted up your Facebook, all of your Facebook behavior for the last, you know, 15 years or whenever Facebook was invented, I have all, every click you've ever made. And I go, oh, this person likes to click on red buttons more than blue buttons. So I'm going to present my red message to this person. And you go, maybe that particular kind of targeting is not worth the invasiveness <laughs> <laughs> of getting, of getting the data. Um, and same with, with, you know, these personality things. I, I think we know that, that it does move the needle, that it, that it is probably better to target. But if you go, well, <laughs> I'm faced with either this activity that everyone says is unethical for a minor gain in persuasion, right? We know yeah. that, that maybe you'll get a real gain in persuasion versus I can still get my message out and half the people who get it are going to be really into it. And the other half may be less into it because it doesn't resonate with their 
their disposition, but I didn't have to violate people's sense of privacy. <laughs> eh, maybe that's fine, right? And, and and so one of the things too is is yeah, I'm curious whether, and I don't think we know this very well, but if I just deployed five messages broadly, yeah. all of which appeal to different kinds of things that different audiences might resonate with, is that enough, right? If you see a message that conflicts with your disposition, is that actually going to backfire? Yeah. Or is it just not persuasive to you? But once the version that speaks to you comes along, you go, oh, actually, okay, I could see how this one, and now I see how this makes sense. Yeah. And and you didn't have to dig into my my browser history to, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or look at your, uh, the, the message of, you know, your personality profile that the company right. has on record. Right. So right. there you go. I'm I'm curious that uh, we've had in the in the world of behavioral science. There's been a lot of discussion about a replication crisis. Hmm. Just in general, do you think that there is a replication crisis, or how do you how do you think about that? Oh God, that is a giant question. So <laughs> wait, we, we like to offer softballs for we you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big questions, Andy. <laughs> Answer yeah. the big questions. <laughs> I, I I struggle a little bit with with. So what I'll say is. For sure, we have evidence that there are parts of psychology that aren't getting replicated. And so, yeah, we can't deny that, that when people are redoing studies, that we're not finding those results again in, in a substantial number of cases. It's how we interpret that that I think is where a lot of these debates come from. Does this mean that we should throw out everything that was conducted more than five years ago and start over? <laughs> Or do we say, ah, it's fine, come on. Most of this stuff is probably fine. And it's just these these replicators aren't aren't capable of finding <laughs> the things that we know to be true. Right. So those are kind of the two extreme ends, and, and I'm obviously somewhere in between, where I think that there is a lot of stuff from the past that, you know, if this effect has been shown over and over and over again, sure, it could be lots of false positives and, you know, unethical manipulating of data over time that's gotten you to that point. But Presumably, that just doesn't seem to be like the most common explanation for how you'd get paper after paper after paper showing a similar kind of pattern of, of results. Um, but I do think that there there is a little bit of a problem with the way that our field works in terms of, you know, you're trying to get something brand new that no one's ever heard of before published into a into a journal. Mm-hmm. And that that might encourage you to sort of leap on phenomena that end up not to be super strong once you test it again over time. So I think we probably have a literature that's littered with stuff like that. And since this idea of like programmatic small steps, building up a theory strikes me as a little harder to do with the incentive structures that we have, (laughs) you know, if that were more the case, then I I would feel more confident about some of those small studies because they would be embedded in a larger theoretical framework, right? So my background, I mentioned Rich Petty, elaboration likelihood model. To me, that's a good example of an understanding of a psychological phenomenon that they have tested and tested. (laughs) So there are just millions of these these tests of this model. And by and large, I think the evidence tends to cohere with this framework that they've built. And so stuff like that, I feel pretty comfortable with, right? And then if it doesn't replicate, then you go, this, I interpret this to maybe mean something different then if like this one-off study that no one has ever tested again from 30 years ago doesn't replicate, yeah. study like that, I might go, eh, no, maybe that was never quite right to begin with. 
<laughs> well, there's two things I want to I want to touch on there. So, so one is your work with Richard Petty, and you did a you, you did a paper and did a really interesting way of of actually looking at a replication piece that actually failed, and then you replicated or you you did some addition. I, I'll I'll let you talk about that. Um, so let's go there first. Yeah. yeah so the main that exactly what we replicated is maybe less relevant to the conversation, yeah. but basic gist is. Rich and others found years ago that people who like to think tend to be more persuaded by strong arguments than weak arguments, but people who don't really care to think very deeply about questions show no real difference between strong and weak arguments in terms of how persuaded they were. Kind of very basic elaboration likelihood model stuff. And that's been shown, you know, several times since they published that paper. So big replication, uh, uh, initiative comes around that tries to replicate, you know, 10 different findings from psychology in these uh, small online studies. Some of them replicate the original effect. Some of them don't. One of the ones that doesn't replicate is this um, persuasion finding. And it, it sort of just struck us as a little strange that that one didn't replicate because there's been so much traction behind findings like that, that it feels like that one had a good chance of being shown. And so when we looked at the actual materials that they used to do the study, we realized, well, these are actually kind of different from what the original study did. And, and not just like different in that, like it was a different topic. And, you know, some types of differences are good because they help you generalize across yeah. to, new, to new things. But they were differences that the theory would have said might undermine your ability to find what you were looking for, right? So the ELM had shown all these different conditions that accentuate the persuasion effect or, or, you know, push it down. And we thought, well, the materials they're using, there are things about them, the length that they used, how they introduced the message, um, that just kind of seemed like it would have worked against finding the effect in the first place. And so maybe it's not a super fair replication if they're sort of setting up materials. I'm not saying they consciously did this to, to try to bury the effect, but that for whatever reason, the materials that ended up in that study may not have been optimal for finding mm -hmm. the effect in ways that you could have anticipated based on all the research that had been done. So we thought, okay, let's take exactly what they did. We're going to do it ourselves. Just take their materials. All the things we said are probably not going to help you find the effect. We'll see if we can find it or not find it, whatever. And then we're going to tweak the things that we thought were problematic to say, well, really, you would have wanted to have a message like this. You wanted to introduce it in this way, blah, blah, blah. And what we find is, I don't know if we're the, the probably there have been other replications of non-replications, but we <laughs> replicated their failure to replicate when we used their <laughs> materials. But we ended up finding the original effect when we used the materials that we thought were more optimal based on the theory. Um, and then <laughs> the crazy thing is this spun out of control because then they said, well, before we publish your thing, we're going to go to these replicators, see what they have to say about it. And they said, well, the thing we want to do is replicate your replication of our replication. <laughs> oh, the original oh, no, seriously. <laughs> so we said, okay, so we share, we gave them our materials from our study. They ran it in this big multi-site replication and their effects were smaller, but they still found that that they get a, a stronger replication of the original effect using our optimal materials, yep. <laughs> and and that their original ones were were weaker. So statistically, I, I won't go into it, but there were still a couple little wrinkles. But basically, the gist of the message uh, is that they replicated our replication of their failure to replicate the original effect. <laughs> That's the best part of this whole podcast right now. <laughs> they 
they replicated the failure to replicate the non-replication of the replicate. No, I'm, I'm just, yeah, yeah. No, but, <laughs> that was fantastic. Oh, but it, yeah. it is well, fascinating. And, and so what, what I don't want to suggest is that every failure to replicate is just missing some piece of information and that, that the replicators did a poor job, but there are cases, you know, it's very easy to see a failure to replicate and go, uh, they did something wrong yeah. <laughs> or eh, this is moderated by things that we've never thought about before. That's an easy out and maybe true, right? That's part of the, this big thing is that there are there are a lot of unknowns in terms of why the patterns of results are going the way they are. But certainly some of the time, you know, a null effect, a, a non-finding yeah. could mean that that something went awry, that there's there's some part of the theory that we haven't accounted for yet. And it maybe doesn't mean we have to throw the theory away, but we have to modify the theory. If we continue to find that we never see this effect ever again <laughs> when we look for it, yeah, obviously that we need to rethink whether this was true to begin with. Which well, takes me, well, I'm sorry, to, which takes me back to the second part that from, from your earlier conversation. It, it, is some of the issue, in, in, again, in your opinion here, uh, the, the way that these studies get communicated out probably more to the general public than maybe even internally in, in inside research um, fields and various different things, but they get generalized. They, 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 you know, this idea that this one study and now they, you generalize it either a to the larger population when it only studied a certain subset or the generalization was on a specific con, you know, specific element. And they just like, Oh, this now applies to everything across the board. I mean, do you see that as part of the, the component here that that is going on? Yeah, I think historically, lots of people have liked to blame media outlets for blowing things out of proportion or popular, you know, writers of popular science books as, as overgeneralizing things. But I think social scientists have to bear some of the brunt of that as okay. well, yeah. because there are there are incentives to being able to say that, like, I've solved this giant problem. And, and you know, we, we've made all this progress. And then I get a book deal. And I and so, you know, I think it's easy to oversell what you find. And I think you get rewarded for overselling what you find. And that might kind of back people into a corner of saying, I did three studies and I have now changed the world. You know, well, yes, you did three studies. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> arguing with that part, but I, I think there's probably more work to do before we can make these big claims. And it, it takes patience to, to wait until we have those data. What role do you think that the peer reviewers have in these replication studies? Yeah, right, because uh, you know, our your academic colleagues are supposed to be reviewing the papers before they get published. Uh, do you think they're, for lack of a better word, just you know, not doing their job? I I have a hard time putting blame on peer review for these sorts of things. So I'm curious what that. Well, I'm just wondering if, question. if if you could if you could look at at some of these studies and and look at the just the way that it's written and go, oh, of course they they didn't replicate because they actually they changed the protocol here mm -hmm. or they the, the kind of content they were using was was different here or the or the environment that they were uh, doing the tests in was was different and they and they identified that and so. It's, there might be some logical reason why they didn't replicate, and yet the purpose of the paper was to say, we went out to replicate this, and we didn't get the same effect. 
Yeah. So some of them are difficult. So some of these big replication things are like, we tried to replicate a hundred findings in psychology. <laughs> and so if you're a reviewer, you'd be like, I have to know a hundred theories <laughs> to be able yeah. to know whether all of these were yeah. done correctly. So I kind of have to take it on faith that they did what they need to do. And, you know, to the credit of people doing lots of these kinds of studies, often they will reach out to the people who came up with those original um, protocols yep. to be like, here's what we're going to do. Let us know if you think that certain things are important. Um and so then if those don't replicate, we go, well, maybe there are one way to explain it is to say, well, there are just things that we didn't ever codify in the original theory that turn out to be important, which again yeah. may have merit, but may also just be a cop out to say, well, this other thing is important and <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, and so peer reviewers, I think the, the model for what makes a lot of sense are these like registered report type of replications yeah. where it's yeah. here's my plan. We would like to replicate this effect. So we're going to get someone who was on the original team to review my plan before the data come in. I get someone else who's unfamiliar with the theory and could maybe look more critically to be like, well, this, why would this, why would you ever do it this way? And then we see the data and we see what they mean. Again, we still only have one study then if it ends up not finding the original effect, I'm still unwilling to say, well, that's it. Theory's gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but it. But I think it it gets us closer to the kind of collaborative replication that would help mitigate some of these issues. Okay, I'm gonna switch over to your podcast. Sure. All right. So a couple questions here. So two part question. Um, so opinion science, fantastic podcast. Again, listeners go out listen to Andy stuff and and then come back to us, even though Andy's <laughs> is better. Um, you know, but but come back and listen to us too. Um, but the two part question. So you've done just over 20, 20 episodes or so. Mm -hmm. So relatively new, but is there anything you learned or that you gleamed in doing those 20 plus episodes that you found surprising? Um mm -hmm. and and then second part of this, uh is there is there any episode that you feel most proud of? Mm. Yeah, so things that I've learned. One thing I have found that's interesting in doing it is I've become more attentive to research that I wasn't familiar with before. Mm. And so if there's any glimmer, I hear something, ordinarily I would have gone, oh, I'll read that someday. Now I go, oh, that person could be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me read what they do. And, and then I'm, I'm discovering people's work who I really wasn't sure, or even friends of mine <laughs> whose work I wasn't as familiar with. I just, yeah. you know, I knew them personally. I thought they're great people. And then I read their stuff and I go, oh my God, this is cool. <laughs> um, wow. You're brighter than I actually thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my, my own education is really broadening. I've, I've joked that even if no one's listening, I'm still learning so much by doing this podcast, by reaching out to people and, and getting new perspectives on questions. I just talked to someone the other day who just like, totally took a different perspective on me on issues in persuasion. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I guess now I have to think about this. I, I would never have really read too deeply into it if I hadn't had to spend, you know, an hour with you talking. Yeah. 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 I think that that's it. All right. So any, any favorite or just, uh, you know, episode that you just feel really proud about or, or it could be more than one. Mm -hmm. it, it, just as long as not all 20. So, yes, right. Go. Well, yeah, that would be such an easy answer too. All 20. All um, of them. I think, so I, two come to mind. The first is the interview I did with Masrin Banaji um, on implicit bias. And so, you know, she's someone who is a recognizable person. She's done a million media interviews and and ta TED Talks and whatever. But I was able to, to talk to her in a way that was really more like, okay, 
if you want to learn about implicit bias, here are 3 billion places you could go. But if you want to know like where, like the story of where it all came from, yeah, this is, this is the episode where we do it. And sort of at the end, she was even like, I've never really told some of these stories before in <laughs> interviews. And so like, this was super cool. Um, and so she talks about my favorite image is she talks about being in her apartment in uh, New Haven when she took the IAT for the first time. And she's like, I had a desktop computer on my dining room table. That's where I did my work at the time. And and I got a, a, a little disc of a computer program from Tony Greenwald and I put it in my computer and I took the IAT and I just remember vividly being in my dining room and being like, oh my God, this is, something is wrong with this program. Like I, I couldn't be this biased. And, <laughs> and, uh, and like, should we even be allowed to tell? And and the story of her husband coming in and she said, husband, take this, <laughs> take this uh, program that we developed. And he was like, you don't let anyone take this because this is like right. a scary innovation in, in the way we do our work. Um, so to get a story like that, I, I just, that's just one example of, of her telling these stories of where the ideas came from her own history as a grad student studying memory and how that morphed into implicit bias. Um, and so I just felt so fortunate. She kept telling these stories and I was like, yeah, keep going. I'm not, I'm not hanging up anytime soon. Um, so for sure, I think in terms of the interview ones, that to me stands out as as personally a super rewarding one. And then the other one is, is the cognitive dissonance one that just came oh. out. So this was an example of when I said I was sort of toying with starting a podcast, it was either like I'm going to do an interview one, which is a little more straightforward, right? Have yep. a conversation, record it, do some editing and whatever. And so that definitely I can do more of them, but I really love shows like um, uh, like Radio Lab I mentioned or 99% Invisible or Science Versus is one that really sort of got this into, into my head of like a narrative science yep. podcast. And so this, the Cognitive Dissonance episode, I interviewed um, a handful of people, Elliot Aronson, Joel Cooper, Jeff Stone, April McGrath, Mike Kazaniga, who all have something to do with the story of dissonance. And tried to tell it as a story, like a like a radio story about the history of dissonance, what it means, what the research on it has looked like, um, in a way that hopefully is kind of like an immersive audio experience. So I'm, I'm not an audio engineer. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe it's garbage when you listen to it with that kind no, of ear, but no, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it's a fascinating and, and absolutely brilliant uh exploration into that and, and the fact that you brought in like uh you know these people who knew leon festinger mm -hmm. and and had that experience and again you, you you talk about the stories and the stories they tell about sitting you know having lunch with with leon mm -hmm. every every saturday in new york or whatever once mm -hmm. a week in new york and you know saying talking about you know him as a person and not just the research and then uh, you bringing all of that in, I thought was really well done and, and, and very, very, very informative as well as engaging from a story perspective. So, and, and I just want to pile on to your, your conversation with Banaji about, about the implicit bias stuff, because I've, I've watched a bunch of her uh, YouTubes and, mm -hmm. you know, I've listened to her and read a lot of, of stuff and I came away so with so much respect for the conversation that you had with her because she was so personal and even revealing just as, as you said, well, I don't think I've ever actually talked to anyone about this in this way. <laughs> like that is the ultimate compliment to pay to an interviewer. And Andy, you just did a fabulous job with that. I thought that, that was a fabulously produced uh, episode Thank and, you. and you got to some really, really great stuff. So, so, uh, so those of those would be, 
uh, two great recommendations uh, for yeah. listeners to go out and check out. But we have to ask you right now, what is on your playlist? <laughs> I forgot. Yes. I, I, had, <laughs> I had somehow convinced myself this part wasn't going to happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know better. Come yeah. on. I've, I've been digging actually recently into like what I was listening to in undergrad a lot lately. I don't know what it is about this time, but on my drive, so I have this long commute between, so I live in Columbus, Ohio, but I work in at Ball State University in Indiana. So I'm, I'm making this long trek uh, back and forth every week. So that's plenty of time. Usually I'm listening to podcasts, honestly, but toward the end of the drive, when I'm getting tired, then I throw on some, some music. Um, I was just thinking the other day that w- revealing of who I am is that, when I was in middle school, my favorite CDs were Weird Al Yankovic and Blue Man Group. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> is eclectic. such a bizarre combination of things. That um, is. So that highlights it. But but I'm a lot of like the, you know, 2005 to 2010 era indie rock type stuff sort of is, is the stuff that I'm into. And then when I write, it's a lot of like movie soundtracks and Mostly from animated films. There was a time when I went to to school to be a, a film animator, and that lasted a couple semesters before <laughs> oh. before I left. But that's always in my back pocket as sort of this this nostalgic thing that I love. Do you have any favorite animated film soundtracks? Ooh, interesting. So one of the ones that I really listened to a lot. This was like my go to high school paper writing <laughs> soundtrack. Was there was a um, I'm forgetting the studio's name, but the movie was called Robots. Um, okay. And there's just something about the score that I thought I just always really like. And it's sort of like a lot of like uh, metal tinkering kinds of sounds because it's about these sort of cartoon robots that there's something kind of thoughtful about it that's sort of like both both uh, energizing and thoughtful about the way that, that that music sounds that I feel like I'm able to kind of get some writing done when I listen to it. Uh, so you do listen to music while you work. Oftentimes, yeah. But not all the time. Uh, I guess sometimes I, for if if I'm really like sitting down to work for a long spell, then I'll throw music on. That's usually the way that I do things. But if I'm like in between classes or in between meetings, I'm not usually throwing it on. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. So it, you talked about using music when you write and mm-hmm. you, even back from high school, obviously mm-hmm. throwing this on. Um, so... Uh, and again, forgive me, I don't know uh, the animation soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Do, do they have words or do they not have words? No, they don't and, have words. So that's mainly okay. what it is. So these these movie scores are good yeah. writing tools because they they don't have words. And they're kind of cinematic and, and reminiscent of storytelling. And yeah. so it sort of gets you into that mindset in a way that like other kinds of instrumental music doesn't necessarily have that narrative flair to it, <laughs> even yeah. in the way that it works. Yeah. Very fascinating. All right, Andy. Uh, last question from me, at least. Uh, so if you're thinking about what your research is going into the future, what are you most excited to, to study? What, what are some of the things that, that are getting you, you know, like, ah, this is, this is going to be some cool stuff if, I can, if we can get this done? So kind of pushing the moral messaging stuff into a slightly new direction, one way that we've done it is to look at like the content of messages that are delivered with the intention of persuading. But the other piece that I think is interesting is just when you find out that someone else holds an opinion for moral reasons, 
or they hold it for non-moral reasons and, and kind of how that shapes the way you think of that person based on mm. their opinion. So for example, I, I stopped eating meat years and years ago. And if you stop eating meat for moral reasons, and then you meet someone who stops eating meat just because they're like, ew, I don't like the taste. You go, we should be on the same wavelength because we, <laughs> we live our lives similarly. Yeah. But for some reason, you've made that choice for a different reason than me. And, and so I don't feel that connection as yeah. strongly. And so how do we think about other people's choices, not by what those choices are, but why they made that choice um, and whether they made it for moral reasons or for non-moral reasons. That I think is sort of a direction that, that things are heading now. Oh, that's fascinating. That is yeah. fascinating. Wow. I, I've, I've, I've often felt a sense of when I'm talking to someone about music and they say, oh, I really love, I really, really love uh, XYZ artists. I'm like, oh, really? Why is that? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I don't know. It's like, it's got a good beat, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, what? Exactly. Like, how can you just say that you love this artist without some fabulous, you know, give me some interpretation. Give me something like you love the melodies. You love the the arrangements. You love the lyrics. You love something. Oh, I don't, you know, this, oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> totally. Or, or if you meet someone who likes the same TV show as you and you're like, oh, this is great. You love this show. Why do you like it? And they go, oh, it's just so funny when they say these awful things. You go, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's not why it's good. Right. That's not, that's, uh, you like I, it for the wrong reasons. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, wow. Oh, well, well, keep us posted on on, sure thing. On, on all that. And Andy, thank you so, so much for taking time to talk to us on Behavioral Groups. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was super fun. Hey, Groovers. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with Andy have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our morally hardwired, unchangeable brains. Well, unchangeable. We've got more. We've got brain plasticity too, don't we? I mean, we, we, we not when I hold a moral argument and you are telling me all the data and information in the world. It doesn't matter. Don't care. No. I feel this way. It's my moral moral obligation to feel this way. And your information is, you know, a bunch of crap. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And and this, it's not so much this is a big surprise, but no. in some ways, it's a little disheartening. <laughs> it was disheartening to hear like this. We, we get really stuck in our moral, in our moral. This is how I feel about it. Uh, yeah. Although I do think, so one of the pieces that I found interesting that I did not know before was this idea that those people who have thought about their moral stances, who have put the effort and time into thinking about why they hold this moral belief are actually the ones who are more likely to be able to be persuaded right. because they have looked at it from a very rational cognitive piece. And moral morality often isn't thought about that way. But those people who have put that time and effort in and have rational justification for their moral standings are the ones who are going to be more open to some of those moral and factual arguments uh, that may contradict this. So I thought that was that was positive. Yeah. Well, it's, it, morality isn't without a good, logical, rational argument either. I mean, it's not, a, it, you know, uh, moral arguments, ethical arguments. You know, there is a sophisticated thinking that goes behind this. It's just that a lot of people don't do it. You know, a, a lot of us are in the boat of, well... <laughs> This is, I feel this way because this is how I feel. 
and I'm not going to spend any time trying to figure it out because, because I've already decided, you know, my, you know, my dad always used to say, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. (laughs) Well, have have you ever had, yeah, I I mean, and and I actually took uh, some insight um, from somebody before who said, look, and I can't remember who it was, but they were saying, look, if, if you ask somebody, is there anything I can do that will change your mind? And they say, no then why am I having a conversation with you? Why am I having a debate? Yeah, in other words, it, it, it not necessarily a conversation. You can have conversations about a lot of things, but if I'm trying to persuade you or you're trying to persuade me and I my mind is so closed off that anything, if I gave you the best argument in the world and you say, nope, that doesn't make it, it won't make a difference for me, then why am I trying to do this? And I've actually had people where I've, I've, I've had a friend of ours, you know who I'm probably talking about, right? Where we were out at a bar one night having a, a big, long conversation over some, you know, beers and highfalutin things. And, you know, I, I just asked, go, is there anything that I can say that will change your mind on this? And he said, no. And I said, then let's not have a conversation about it because it's just pissing me off. Right, right. There's other things that we can talk about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and the part of the other part of this that is fascinating is how Andy is is leading us into with his research, the idea of using moral arguments or moral messaging in a way that is persuasive, right? For for those for those people who have thought about stuff. The the uh, protect your community message around wearing masks, for instance, is is a great is a great way of thinking about I've got a moral uh, I feel morally connected to support my community, to defend my family, to defend my community. And protecting my community is, a, is an important moral stance that I have, that I've come to. And so the idea of pitching wearing a mask as a way to protect your community could persuade uh, people, at least some people, uh, to wear masks who otherwise wouldn't have been willing to do so. Right. And again, I think the interesting piece here is different people have different moral foundations. So the the interesting part that he talked about when that researcher on mass is those people who who felt that the coronavirus, the health issue piece that he was talking about, those people who already felt that health was an important piece were the ones more likely to be persuaded by that moral message. People who didn't, in other words, maybe people who didn't see this as a, as a health thing or that health was as an important moral foundation for them, did not be, were not as persuaded by that message. So this is important for policymakers. And I think it's also important for corporate executives as we're thinking through how you're messaging. You, if you understand your audience, if you understand the some of the moral fibers of your audience, then you can target those messages if you're trying to persuade them to to respond to those moral arguments. However, we have a variety of people with a variety of different moral foundations. So you may have to be doing multiple different types of communications in order to address all of the different ones. And that gets to be complex and gets to be difficult, but it could be done, right? I'm also thinking back in the corporate uh, mode, that there are some unplumbed uh, treasures, some really great buried treasures in the the corporate value statements. Almost every corporation has a set of value statements. And you think, uh, how often are those 
paraded out in front of people. You know, I know that uh, a lot of leadership teams go through an annual strategic planning process. And typically at those kinds of sessions, it might even start with, okay, well, here's our company values, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's move on. And But what about actually engaging the employee population in reviewing and aligning their work to the corporate values? Is the job that I'm doing, does it actually conform with the corporate values that we have? Are we doing what we say that we wanted to do at the beginning of the year or the beginning of the corporation? Uh, These are, I think that there is an opportunity to play off of moral messaging in a corporate setting that is being untapped right that is untapped right now yeah and i we do a lot of work with around with companies around incentives and communicating those incentives lots of times when we go into organizations those incentive communications are factual they are very very factual and one of the things that we have tried to do and and what we we bring in when when we're brought in is to take that factual information which is vital right you need to understand how your incentives work what you know product a gets this percentage and product b gets paid out this way but you also have to put it into the larger perspective and so how do you tie that into the moral uh, foundations or the values of the organization so uh, two different ways right you know do this to earn a bonus right. is a very different message total, than total facts just just the facts. total facts you do do x y and z and you'll get a bonus Versus do X, Y, and Z because it helps our customers solve their problem. Yeah. And as a result of that, you will earn a bonus. So it's that switch and adding in that connection back to the values that comes into this. And, you know, from my perspective is it aligns around to the four drive model and it's the last drive that, you know, we've talked about before. And if you want to check out, we have some episodes that just talk about that early on. So go way back into the into the episode list uh, and talk and look about the four drive, but the four drive of, of define and defend is really about aligning your personal identity and beliefs with those of the organization. And so if you have a workforce that, that does that and the organization is doing that, you're actually more motivated. And so, and are we connecting on some level to intrinsic motivation? at this, right? Which is very powerful, very long-term. And companies, like, you know, I really believe that this is an untapped resource uh, for organizations. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Kurt, what else? What else did you want to um, groove on with? It was a fantastic conversation. It was. There's so many things we could groove on. You know, one of the pieces, though, I, I thought was really interesting was his, the study they did on the replication crisis, where they went, I, I loved this. I just love this idea of replicating the replication that did not replicate the original study. Yes. yes. But then doing that so that you you followed the protocol that the, the replication did, that you felt, hmm, this protocol kind of varied from the original in these three or four pieces. So let's do that. And then let's replicate the the original following that protocol to the degree. Yes. And I love this fact that, yeah, when they replicated it with the way the replication one did, the first replication, it didn't replicate. But when they replicated it using the protocol from the very first one, it did replicate, which again, just goes back to this point of we need to look at all research with a very 
skeptical mind, skeptical in the way of, of making sure you understand how the how the research was done, how many, how many people were, you know, were, were part of the study, you know, what type of, of mathematical processing did they use? How did they question this? How did they test their hypothesis? Because if we don't understand that, then we end up, you know, and I fall, fall afraid, pray to this, you end up getting super excited about something that may or may not be true or may not be able to be larger than the study in and of itself. Uh, it reminds me of our one of our first conversations with Barry Ritholtz. When he goes into an organization, he's just a guy on the front lines looking uh, and they're and they're feeding him some data and he just says, "Well, what about this and what about this and what about this?" The, the the you're not telling me the whole story. You're, you're giving me just one little slice here that isn't really um, representative. It doesn't sound like it's representative of the of the group as a whole. So let's let's get better data going here and ask better questions in order to uh, in order to come up with a good strategy. You know, let's have let's have a broader not sense of of knowledge and and uh, a base of knowledge uh, going into this. Um, the other, the other thing that that reminds me of is in the corporate world is we, we I think we need to be more skeptical of um, data analytics. And by the way, I'm not trying to say don't trust your data analytics people. That's not the message. But it is worthwhile asking questions from the perspectives that we have, because the marketing person, the HR person, the UX person, everybody's going to have a different perspective. And it's okay to ask the data analytics people, what about this perspective? Here's my perspective. What about this? And to dive into that, to get better, uh, better data and better analysis that is more fitting for what the business actually need. Well, and market research, the same thing. Yeah. You have to look at that market research with a skeptical eye. What are the questions they asked? How did they, who did they ask? When did they ask them? Again, the one thing about that we constantly come back to when in this show, and I think behavioral science in general, context matters, right? Context matters in in how people respond, in how they they interpret things. And so you have to understand the context within which the data science, the market research, the, you know, the opinions that HR people have, why do they have them? Try to, you know, peel back those layers and just look at things to try to get down to that core. And I think that's a really power, powerful thing. And and it takes me back, actually, thinking through, you know, when we interviewed and talked with John John Barge, right? He said that the, you know, you're adding to the literature when we discover these nuances. And I think, you know, we, we talk about that in research all the time. Yeah. Businesses can add to their literature, their understanding of the client, their understanding of how employees are motivated by by looking at these things and retesting things and re-examining things and looking at them with this kind of scientific perspective and saying, hmm, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And you can't get stuck down in analysis paralysis, but you can add to your understanding. And I think that can be the difference between you being a super, super uh, successful or you just being successful or you might even be, you know, a failure. So yeah, that acts as a little bridge to get into just this tiny little thing that when we were talking about uh, Andy's podcast, Opinion Science, that we both love dearly. 
that we we want to reiterate, you should go out and listen to Cognitive Dissonance episode because it's fantastic. Um, but you know, Andy talked about a, a fundamental level of curiosity, and when he when we asked him about what has he learned, he said um, he's become more attentive to unfamiliar research. Right. And so like, there's this, what, what are, what are corporations doing? What, what are people doing working in big corporations to actually become more familiar and more attentive to things that could help their job, could help their career growth, could help their, um, could help their company in, in the projects that they're working on. Um, what are they doing to, to be curious about their own their own work. Uh, and the second thing he says that he's just learning lots of new things because of this. And then the third thing was he's, he's introduced to new ways of thinking about things. He's introduced in, right? And this is what happens when we have some curiosity. And, and I, I just wonder what HR departments are doing to encourage not just lifelong learning with a job, but real curiosity. Try to stimulate real curiosity among employees. Well, and you have to think, Andy's a curious guy. He's a researcher by by uh, job, but also by nature. Yeah. But the fact that having this podcast is opening him up to more ideas. So again, at a corporate level, if I'm a leader, what I'm probably thinking about my business all the time and trying to think of new ideas, but is there some vehicle that I could do? And it doesn't have to be a podcast. You know, it could be a weekly email that goes out to uh, my employees right? Or my team that highlights, here are some cool things that I found uh, in, in this past week. Here's some things we need to be looking at because that act, if you do that every week, then your radar is up for when those things cross your path. When you see something on a social media thread, or when you see something in, you know, the readings that you're doing, the articles that you're, you're, you're talking to, you pay more attention to it because it is now there's an availability bias, right? You're, you you know what you need to be thinking about because you got to write this, this email or this letter to this or start a blog or do something, but something that is just consistent that requires you to be thinking about this. So for leaders, you know, you see those, you know, weekly emails that go out. I think they're fantastic. Yeah. And there's nothing like a goal to help focus your attention. So it doesn't have to be a, a major goal that you've got to change the world. It could just be my goal is every week I'm going to summarize some things that I learned this week and share it with my team. Or maybe it's even, maybe you don't even put it into an email. Maybe it's part of your, your weekly meeting, right? And maybe this is a section of your weekly meeting. What's new? And then you can get your team focused in on that. If you think, all right, so everybody has to, has to share what is new? What, what, what was something new that they found this week? Uh, it could be some interesting things. Again, just getting people to be a little more open and, and purposeful about finding some of that new information. And I wanted to ask you, uh, one of the things we talked about with Andy when, when it came to music was about uh, movie soundtracks. And I was wondering if since we had that conversation, uh, uh, did it bring any attention or focus from you on movie soundtracks? Were you, uh, did you find, have you been paying any more attention to movie soundtracks because of that conversation? Was it good priming or prompting or was it just like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> okay. So for me, I've been paying more attention to movie soundtracks. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not a big movie soundtrack person to begin with. And I, and yeah, uh, you know, no, I haven't, I have, not 
<laughs> added movie soundtracks to my playlist or anything. The, the one movie soundtrack that I've paid attention to in the past few years, just because my kids is and actually not, it's not a movie soundtrack. It's a, it's a musical, right? It, it's Hamilton. So oh, that's, yeah. 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 Which is pretty fantastic. So. It is pretty fantastic. Yeah. So. Uh, well, Groovers, hang around. We're going to do a quick bonus track here just to do quickly summarize our episode. And uh, thanks for listening. Hey, Groovers, this is Tim with the bonus track. Annie Latrell's research focuses on moral psychology and the way human beings can be persuaded to change our positions on moral issues. We were particularly interested in hearing about how people who have based their positions on really careful analysis tend to be the ones who are more open to being persuaded when new data offers new insight. So our willingness to be open to a fresh idea is in part based on how strong or weak the arguments were in coming to our own conclusions. The research indicates that people with weak arguments are harder to persuade to new ideas. We also want to remind you that Andy's podcast called Opinion Science is one of our favorite podcasts, period. We highly recommend it. And for your groove idea for the week, we'd like you to consider Andy's discussion about the replication crisis. He indicated that researchers are rarely rewarded for publishing papers that support an already existing theory. And in other words, questioning the status quo is typically a good thing. So this week, we'd like you to take a look around your work and ask yourself, what are you doing to move away from the status quo? What have you questioned or tested or asked why are we still using the same process from 2015? Or why are sales calculated that way? Or why are our target customers who they are and not someone else? As always, drop us a line, let us know what you think. And for now, we hope you go out, have a great week and keep on grooving. <laughs>